This is WNSP Outdoors, live on 105.5 FM and on the Sound of Mobile app. Now, let's head back outdoors with Alan White. Welcome back to the show. This uh, section of our show is brought to us by plantagroproducts.com for custom liquid, lime, and fertilizer with less cost, less waste, less wear on equipment, and less work. Try this out, plantagraproducts.com. They have a whole variety of different products, including liquid lime, which I found was very efficient. So uh, go to plantagraproducts.com and learn more about that. Our special guest today is Dr. Marcus Lashley. He is with the University of Florida, associate professor there, with an emphasis on uh, wildlife. And uh, I've been listening to Marcus and uh, Dr. Goolsby from Auburn for a while now on YouTube. They have a great YouTube channel there, and we'll talk about that too. But uh, really learned a lot from these two serious scientists <laughs> and also avid turkey hunters. Uh, Dr. Lashley, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You're, you're Excited very, to be here. You're very welcome. Now, I know y'all are gearing up for the Wild Turkey Convention uh, coming mm-hmm. up, I think, next weekend in Nashville. But uh, what are some of the latest, uh, I guess, research projects that y'all are working on? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So I, I'm I, most of my turkey research is in Florida. Mm-hmm. And actually, at the convention, I'll be uh, giving a presentation. I believe on Thursday, one uh, thirty in the afternoon. If folks are there and interested, but uh, it's kind of outlining the scope of research that we have ongoing in Florida, and that includes uh, quite a few projects. Actually, uh, we have a, a our, our major project where we're capturing turkeys, we're tagging hens and gobblers. And we're doing that down in the heart of the Osceola Range in central and south Florida. Mm-hmm. And the idea of, it, of that study is that we want to evaluate the productivity of the population and particularly looking at it in the south season and the north season. So trying to compare uh, populations in both of those those uh, areas. And uh, for probably the last three or four decades, we haven't done that much work in that part of the world in, in Osceola range. And, uh, where I'm really excited to see how that, you know, how it turns out because it'll give us up to date information on how the, the population is functioning. That, that will be GPS tags. So we'll be able to estimate habitat use and, and home ranges and those sorts of things, which we actually don't even have data on from that subspecies. So I'm very excited yeah. And uh, we have various other aspects of it as well. We have these other things I call them sound boxes. Uh, they basically just record sound, mm-hmm. and you can uh, distribute these units all across the landscape and and measure gobbling. So we have another aspect of the study where we have, I think it's 10 areas now across the southern part of the state where we have those those units in a grid on areas that are hunted versus areas that are not hunted. And the idea there is that we can look at how the chronology of gobbling uh, is occurring across, you know, South Florida and also look at it as it relates to hunting. 
Hmm, interesting stuff. Well, I'll be I'll be uh, anxious to to learn more about the Osceola. That subspecies has been one of the most interesting that to me. I've never I've never hunted one, but I'd I'd sure want to go down there and do that someday. They're beautiful birds, yeah. and, and their spurs seem to be longer than the easterns that we have here in Alabama too. Yeah, the, the, especially there there seems to be a, a few concentrated areas where the spur length is just really really long, hmm. and one of those is in one of our study areas is in one of those areas. So I'm I'm getting to put my hands on some some really good looking birds, but hmm. yeah, the landscape is so interesting down there as well. Mm-hmm. You know that the, the uh, a lot of the land is privately owned and it's big cattle ranches, and uh, you know. I know I grew up in Alabama, and and when I moved to Florida, I just I didn't even know that that existed, to be honest with you. <laughs> so that old Florida, and especially in South Florida, I just didn't know it was even a thing. Yeah. But true. going and, and looking in that landscape, it's a really cool place, and I definitely encourage people, if you haven't spent any time down there, especially if you like turkeys, you know, spending some time down there is a, a pretty good idea. Mm. I know you're interested in disturbance ecology, and uh, you have a hashtag, mm-hmm. Dr. Disturbance. That's pretty cool. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> tell us what disturbance ecology is. Yeah, so uh, I think folks probably have heard the term ecology before, and that basically just, all, all that is is the study of how organisms interact with each other in their environment. And my specialty area is really disturbance ecology and applying that knowledge to habitat management. And that really is just a fancy way for me to signal to other scientists what, you know, what aspect of ecology I focus on and specialize in. So the, that's where that handle came from. And actually one of my, my friends and colleagues told me when I when I developed that Dr. Disturbance handle, he said it sounded like a villain, like a super villain or something. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it was really, I wanted something that would stick in people's head and they'd know where to go back to to get information, you know, that they can use for habitat management. I've really uh, really enjoyed the podcast. I'm sorry to disturb you. Go ahead. (laughs) No, that's fine. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. I didn't mean Uh, to interrupt. Uh, I was going to talk about the podcast just a minute in uh your mm-hmm. channel on youtube is called uf deer is that right yes okay uf deer in case people want to look that up i know y'all are involved with turkeys for tomorrow which is a great fairly new mm-hmm. organization and uh the information the education that y'all provide has been really enjoyable to me, and I'm sure thousands of other people. How did you come up with uh, the idea to do a podcast or a YouTube channel? Yeah, so so I'm an extension specialist, and and uh, from the university's perspective, we have in, in the land grant mission. There's there's three parts to that. Most people think about teaching when they think about the university, or maybe research. But there's also a third arm that's extending knowledge to the general public. And so I have a role, a formal role, to do that here. And I have been trying to come up with strategies to extend knowledge to the public through various uh, you know, methods. So the, the podcast, uh, that was one of the things. Also the YouTube channel, 
all the social media platforms. You know, uh, I've developed a couple of different kinds of online training that people could take and also do a lot of things in person as well. So that's how that came to be, and particularly the Wild Turkey Science podcast. Mm -hmm. that, That came from various things coming together all at once. So right now is a special time for wild turkeys. We have more research going on across the range of turkeys than ever in the history of wild turkey research, which is pretty special. That's in response to the perceived declines in many states of turkeys. And, you know, uh, you guys are avid turkey hunters. Not having turkeys or having very few turkeys is just not an option anymore for a lot of us, right? <laughs> so uh, what, that has energized people that we really need to figure out what's going on, and it's led to funding and, and uh, researchers getting interested all across the range. Oh, I so, couldn't. I'm sorry. So there you go. <laughs> I, I, here I am disturbing you. Um, I, <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. And, uh, and the fact that they are, there's so many helpful things going on now that five, mm-hmm. even five years ago were not going on. That's exactly right. It's all starting, you know, just, you know, this exponential increase in, in knowledge and effort all going on at once. And that, I, I think that's a special time. And I had, had launched a podcast network. This is called Natural Resources University. The idea was that with that was to get a bunch of scientists together that focus on land management and, and pond management and all these different things into one place so that if somebody's interested and they have a farm and they want to, you know, manage resource, natural resources, whether it be for hunting or fishing or whatever, that they'd have one place to go to do that. Mm-hmm. And I originally was just hosting one that was focused on prescribed fire, and that's because I had the expertise out of the group of people that got together. And I saw the need, and I, I, I've been passionate about wild turkeys since I was a little kid. In fact, I would not be doing what I'm doing if it hadn't have been for my hunting experience as a little kid. Yeah. So that led me into this, and we, got, we had the idea to develop that podcast to try to connect people to the, the research that's been done in the past on turkeys, but also to what's going on now. So we commonly interview scientists from all over the range to see what they're doing, what they're finding in their studies. We interview the state agency, you know, leaders for for turkey Mm -hmm. management to see how the populations are, are functioning in the states. And the idea was just to give people a direct connection, you know, in one hub. Well, to have, all uh, of that kind of information. I've really enjoyed that. Can you hold on through the break? We've got a hard break here, and uh, I want to ask you about habitat when we come back. Absolutely. Thank you. We'll be right back. Uh, the The reason I answered it that way is it, it can look a lot of different ways. Okay. And, you know, we have some a few components that are really important to have arranged in a way that turkeys can use it so that they use your property, but also are productive. You know, they're, they're produ- producing young and the next generation of turkeys. Right. So uh, what, what that needs, obviously, uh, if folks that, are, that hunt turkeys, you know, they roost in trees. You, you have to have some trees that they can roost in, and that's okay. pretty obvious. And then as a hunter, most people interact with turkeys in the spring. You see them out in fields, you know, strutting or, or what have you. And uh, they think about that as turkey habitat. But the two components that are, 
usually limiting uh, outside of the roost trees are actually not related to what we usually see them do in the spring. So that would be nesting and brooding cover. Okay. And uh, actually, on, on the Wild Turkey Science podcast, we've had several scientists come on, and all of them have agreed, and I agree with them as a habitat specialist as well, that brooding cover is usually the most limiting factor on the on the landscape. So mm-hmm. in on your 40, I would be trying to make sure that I have, you know, 10 to 15 percent at a minimum of that area in something that is high-quality brooding cover. And the same would go for, for nesting cover. It's a little easier to come by nesting cover generally on the landscape, okay. but it's certainly important to make sure that you're incorporating into your, your land you know, with that management. Can you explain the difference between nesting cover and brooding cover for folks? Yeah, that's, that's a, a great question. So if you're thinking about nesting cover, that is basically a little bit later in succession. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is if you think about a pine stand, that, that's really common across the, you know, the south and Alabama for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a pine stand that you go in and thin, you release sunlight so that it gets to the, the forest floor. Well, vegetation will respond at the ground level to that, and it's a pretty predictable pattern in that, you know, the how plants will change over time. Mm-hmm. So in that case where it starts developing, in, in most of Alabama at least, uh, it will start to developing into fairly good nesting cover about two years after that that canopy okay. manipulation. I, I can envision and that. Then, yeah, I can, I can see that in my head. You know, yeah, so it's so you know when you first disturb it, you'll get a lot of of herbaceous plants, so the grasses and forbs, mm-hmm. and that really is excellent brooding cover. So okay. there'll be a lot of bare ground for them to navigate around through, okay. and also uh, you know dominated by those plants. And then a little bit later, it, you'll start to get some shrubs, some some uh, trees saplings and that sort of thing starting to invade mm-hmm. they're not dominating it yet but there's some in the plant community that generally is somewhere between two and five years uh, depending on the productivity of the the ground that you're on so somewhere in, in that window usually provides high quality nesting cover the same could be in a field where you could you can have really high quality brooding cover the year that you disc or burn, mm-hmm. and maybe the next year uh, it can provide pretty high quality. And yes. then two or three years after that that disturbance, you start to develop into really high quality nesting cover. But it I doesn't can, take that long, yeah. you know. Once the woody component is really dominating it, where it won't be used for either purpose. Mm-hmm. I can see how rotating fire in different sections of that forty acres could produce both and keep mm-hmm. both for forever. Really. Yeah, yeah, you can you can essentially as long as sunlight is not limiting. So in other words, as long as there's enough light getting through the canopy, you can maintain that basically in perpetuity, like you said. And if you have areas that you've burned in the same year versus ones that you burned a year or two ago, you know, and those are in close proximity, you're essentially making sure that you have nesting and brooding cover right together. And that's important because you think about a turkey when it hatches a nest that 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 poult is just you know a tiny little puffball right 
it can't go that far. That's right. For the, about the first two weeks of life. In fact, it can't thermoregulate really. So if you if it doesn't have the right kind of cover, even if there are no predators on the landscape, it's still going to die because it can't thermoregulate and handle the the exposure. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to have that that Forb dominated community. I actually have a YouTube video showing exactly what that looks like. So mm-hmm. if people are interested. You know, I'd encourage you to to click on that link. It's a short video just showing you exactly what that pole rearing cover needs to look like. That'd be great. Hey, Dr. Lashley, you know, uh, you mentioned fire, and we all love to be able to, as turkey hunters, be able to hunt where they burn in or, or burn mm-hmm. our own land. <laughs> but so, so many hunters, and probably the majority of turkey hunters, they don't own the land they hunt on, and they have to lease it from someone or have permission from a landowner to hunt. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what are some things people in that situation can do to, to help their habitat, or especially like brood habitat or nesting habitat? Yeah. What, what can they do? Yeah, that that I get that all the time. We, on Wild Turkey Science, episode 11 is specifically going through all of the things we could think of that you can do in that situation. So you can get a really detailed look there. But for you know, for now, particularly brooding cover that that we know is so limited across the landscape, that's something that you can incorporate into even a lease situation fairly easily. And, uh, like, one of the videos I have online is showing you how you can use your, your fall food plot to transition it into high-quality brooding cover. Mm-hmm. So, basically, then your food plots turn into good brooding cover during, you know, during lake spring. Cool. So, uh, managing roadsides is pretty common, especially for some of the, the bigger uh, private timber companies that they have daylighted the roads. So, you basically have these really wide roadsides. Yeah. That can be exceptional brooding cover if it's managed well, and it also provides connectivity throughout the property. Uh, power line right-of-ways or pipeline right-of-ways, those can be managed to be excellent brooding and nesting cover. So those, there are a lot of opportunities where you have space where you don't have to manipulate the, the, uh, you know, the timber operation, so to speak, to really make a huge impact on productivity on that landscape. And just think about a lot of those opportunities are in those openings. And unfortunately, what I usually see when I'm going out on property is many of those those areas are, are being poorly managed from the perspective of a turkey. And that in particular is when it's dominated by something like bahia grass, mm-hmm. where, you know, turkeys might strut in that and it's great for that purpose. But from a brood's perspective, they're going to die there. But that's not brooding cover, and, and they can't survive in it until they get old, you know, uh, three or four weeks old. They've already had to run through the gauntlet of when most of the mortality happens. And unfortunately, you know, if, if you're in a sod-forming grass in those openings, they just can't use it. A lot of the food plots that are being implemented, like particularly ryegrass, mm-hmm. the plants being chosen for those food plots when when they get around to the spring, they aren't supporting the structure that's needed either. Mm-hmm. So that those are two ways that you can really quickly change, you know, the productivity of the population by just changing which plants you plant in the food plot, or by using you know herbicides to to clean up some of the grass issues, you know, that w- that are suppressing that for community that you really want. 
having insects to eat is really important to poults. Uh, the first mm-hmm. few, I guess, days or weeks in their life, they can only eat insects. Is that right? Uh, yeah, for the first two weeks or so, t- at least 10 days, they're eating almost 100% of their diet is insect. Okay. So it's, a, it's absolutely critical. You know, you think about how fast they're growing. So they're not, you know, they're growing skeletal-wise, they're, they're a skeletal mass, mm-hmm. but they're also growing feathers at the same time. And all of that requires a really high-protein diet, which is basically only met through eating insects. And this for, that forb-dominated community, that's the primary, uh, one of the primary reasons that we really want that kind of cover, mm-hmm. because that produces a really high abundance of good insects for them to eat, and it makes them accessible because of the structure it creates for Absolutely. vegetation. Absolutely. Well, I recommend everybody to... Go on YouTube and uh, find Wild Turkey Science. Go to UF Deer Lab channel and look at Wild Turkey Science. I really enjoyed that. And uh, if you want to learn a lot about habitat for wild turkeys and, you know, wild turkey science, you really enjoy that. And uh, Dr. Marcus, I appreciate you being here. And thank you for taking out time to uh, educate us a little bit more. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Yes, sir. That was some great information. I I appreciate having him. All right. That's going to do it for this week, WNSP Outdoors. I hope you all take time this week to go outside and enjoy God's creation.